Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our study uh, in the book of Romans with this, our 63rd uh, message uh, within this marvelous uh, book. I do apologize for some of the sound issues we are having uh, this morning. Hopefully, uh, they'll be remedied uh, as we move on. It sounds like things are, are good at the moment. Um, Romans chapter 8, uh, we are looking this morning particularly at verses 4 through 11, uh, and even more particularly uh, through some of those center verses. And so please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word, Romans 8, 4 through 11. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds by your spirit, that we would not only hear your word, but that we would, by your grace, believe your word and respond to your word by faith and look to Christ alone for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Christ Church began uh, a little over nine years ago in 2013. The First Scots Presbyterian Church on Meeting Street kindly gave us permission to use their lovely 18th century chapel for the first three months of our worship services. Some of you were there in those exciting early days of this church. A lot of people don't even have a concept of what it is to actually just plant and start a church, and that's what we did. In fact, for the first service, I was wondering if anybody was even going to show up. I had an idea that a few would, uh, but the Lord's blessed, and many seemed to be interested in what we were wanting uh, to do by the grace of God. There was so much anticipation in those early days about what the Lord would do through His powerful Word. After some initial growth that fall, we began to meet at St. Johannes Lutheran Church on Hazel Street. But soon we grew out of that space, and we signed a lease at Moultrie Middle School, that great ecclesiastical architectural gem But we were thankful. Uh, It had lots of natural light. It was a good place for us to be. We were there for Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, and we met in that middle school for over five years. 
The seats were hard, but the fellowship was sweet. From 2018 to 2020, we worshiped on Lord's Day evenings in the charming St. Paul's Lutheran Church on Pitt Street in the Old Village. We met at St. Paul's and online during the COVID year. When planting a church, one cannot help but feel like a 21st century nomad, never settled, always moving to the next location. I know some of you that were with us throughout those years felt that way. It was amazing. At times, I felt like a part-time real estate agent, incessantly on the lookout for property. In fact, I've started to have some PTSD as we've started to outgrow this space, and I'm starting to look at real estate signs again. And uh, These things are the life of a growing church. Well, it was a sweet providence when God led us to this property. It was a design center, but they were moving out. And so we jumped on the opportunity to do a long-term lease on this space. And this turned out to be a 12-month renovation project where this entire space that we have here was totally gutted and built from the top and the bottom, everything new. And in January 2021, we moved in. We took up residence. We took up residence in this space and had our first Lord's Day worship service on January the 31st. It was so wonderful to move in and to finally have a church home, as it were, a space that we could be in all week long and do various ministries in. God has been so good to us. Amen? God has been so good to us, and we don't ever want to forget. Well, as we return to Romans chapter 8 this morning, we are told of another taking up of residence. We are told of another taking up of residence, aren't we? It's a move-in that truly astonishes It's the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in His people. The Holy Spirit of God taking up residence in His people. It's Christ, the hope of glory, dwelling not just with us, but in us. It's this indwelling that makes the Christian life, please hear this, It's this indwelling that makes the Christian life a spiritual one, not just one of formal religion or self-improvement or civil religion. The Christian life, biblically and properly understood, is a life that is spiritual. We believe in And the fact that one must be born again by the Spirit to have life. We are not those who believe in formalistic, outward, activity-focused religion. We are those who believe that there is a God above who is holy and that there is a humanity who has rebelled against Him, collectively raising our fists saying, you know, God, we're going to do things our way and make a complete mess of the world Have you seen the headlines recently? Make a complete mess of the world. And there's hostility between God and man. God is holy. Man is sinful. How is this chasm going to be breached? How is man going to be brought back into fellowship with God when man's a rebel sinner and God is holy and just? Well, 
This hope of glory comes through Christ. This is what makes the Christian life a spiritual one, is in our natural selves, we cannot make our way to God. Remember what we learned earlier in Romans 8, that God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We read the Ten Commandments earlier. How many of you read those and thought, well, (laughs) got those down. Had a good week. I think I obeyed those pretty well. Well, you know what? Pretty well is a complete wrong, completely wrong understanding of how you obeyed those Ten Commandments. The fact is that none of us obeyed them even close to the standard, which is the standard of perfection, which is the standard of God. He is holy, and we break those commandments, and we've broken those commandments. And, and so because of that, we have a big problem, and the only way that this problem can be solved is not through our law-keeping, not through our spiritual performance, as it were, not through our good works, but God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to obey those Ten Commandments perfectly His entire life, and then as a perfect law-keeper, a sinless lamb, laying His life down on the cross at Calvary. And bearing your sin and mine, bearing your shame and mine, bearing your guilt and mine, he suffered and died on the cross, not only bearing our sins, but bearing the very wrath of God for our sins. Notice in Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 3, that he, that is God, condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Whose sin did he condemn? Our sin. That's the work of God. Of, the, of Christ. That's the good news, that God the Father sent His only Son, and that God the Father condemned sin in His Son's flesh on the cross for you and for me. And so Christianity is not a self-improvement project. It's not a way to be entertained. Uh, it's not a way to have our best life now. It's not a way to have a better society. You know, Winston Churchill was the great leader of World War II, but, you know, Churchill had civil religion. And many of our early fathers of our country, it was the same thing. They thought that Christianity was good for America because of its morals. But that misses the mark of what true Christianity is. True Christianity is spiritual. Basic to the authentic Christian life is the fact that the Spirit of God takes up residence in those who are united to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Apart, and this is from earlier on in Romans 8, apart from the law of the Spirit of life, we are captive to the law of sin and death. That's what Paul teaches us, again, in verse 2 and throughout this entire chapter. So just as the Spirit of God mysteriously took up residence in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. So after Pentecost, in a mysterious way, he has taken up residence in us, his people. His people who are notably called temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Paul writes in Romans 8, 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And when you thought that it couldn't get any better, he then writes in verse 10 that Christ is in you. Because the Spirit of God is in Christ, 
and Christ is in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is in us, and Christ is in us because we are united to him. And so, after Paul brings some powerful teaching on the nature and implications of the gospel in the first four verses of chapter 8, he begins a section on the contrast between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the Spirit. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And by doing so, he is highlighting some big differences, now listen, between Christians and non-Christians. He's noting a difference between Christians and non-Christians. The Apostle Paul was not a universalist. The Apostle Paul was not a universalist. And like his Lord, he didn't ignore the profound spiritual implications of being in Christ or, as it were, for some, being outside of Christ and remaining under God's just judgment. So there are three points that I want to make uh, this morning. Actually, I'm not making them. God's Word is making them, but these are the points that I have formulated to help us to get our minds around this text in verses 9 uh, through 11. The first is this, a loving and pastoral reminder. A loving and pastoral reminder in the first part of verse 9. And then the second part of verse 9, we have a clarifying and sobering fact. A clarifying and sobering fact. And then thirdly, a glorious and comforting promise. A glorious and comforting promise. First of all, a loving and pastoral reminder. Look with me again at verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying, as, a, as, a, as an apostle, as a, a, a pastor, he's bringing these Roman Christians an encouraging reminder of their new status with God by saying, you believers in Christ, you are not in the realm of the flesh, as you once were. You are in the realm and dominion of the Spirit. You are in the Spirit. Dear ones, Paul is saying, you are not like those that I have just described in verses 6 through 8. You are not in the flesh. Therefore, you are no longer hostile to God. You are no longer possessing an unsubmissive heart towards the law of God. You are no longer unable to please God. No, in fact, now that you are in Christ, you are no longer in the flesh, under the, the law, under the crushing demands of the law as a means for salvation. You are no longer held captive to sin. No, you've been set free by the grace of God, and now you are in the realm of grace. You are in Christ. You are united to Him. You are now indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you aren't hostile to God anymore. You love God. You are not unsubmissive to the law anymore, even though you don't obey it perfectly. You are not unsubmissive to it. You want to obey the law of God out of a heart of gratitude. And finally, it says here, as a non-Christian, you are unable to please God, but as a believer, you are able to please God because you are in Christ and you are able to please Him 
in Christ. And then he, he says in verse 9 an interesting thing at the, in the latter part. He says, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, before we consider this massively important phrase, the Spirit of God dwells in you, I want to explain something critical about the Greek translation here. Notice that the sentence begins with the three words, if in fact, if in fact, almost giving a sense that Paul wants his readers to question the very point that he has just made about them. Questioning the very pastoral encouragement that he seeks to bring to them. That they are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. As if he's taking away with one hand what he's just given them with the other. Remember, Paul is reminding them in a pastoral way of their new status as those who are in the spirit. No, a much better translation of the Greek conjunction here is the word since. Since, since the Spirit of God dwells in you, not if the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, the apostle is saying this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives or dwells in you. It's a loving word to cultivate assurance, not to foster doubt. Indeed, as we will learn, this entire chapter is meant to deepen the believer's assurance in Christ. Now let's think for a moment about this profound phrase, the Spirit of God dwells in you. What does it mean? What are the implications of the Spirit of God dwelling within us? Well, uh, the phrase, first of all, means what it says, uh, what we considered earlier. Those who are in Christ, those who have been set free by the Spirit of life, are indwelt by the Spirit of God in their hearts and lives. The Spirit of God abides in, dwells in, takes up residence in the lives of His people. Now, please get this, because you may think, well, what's the big deal? The force is everywhere. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen Star Wars. I've seen the 84 episodes of Star Wars. Isn't the Spirit of God in everyone? Aren't we just to do what I hear the announced the commentator saying on TV and the talk shows, that we just need to discover God within us? Isn't the Spirit of God living in, in all of His creatures? Well, the Bible doesn't teach this. No, the Holy Spirit doesn't abide in everyone but he does abide in those who are saved, who are united to Christ. And dear ones, here's some great news. When the Spirit takes up residence in one of God's redeemed children, he never leaves them, and he never forsakes them. According to one commentator, the Greek words oikein, or dwell in, it's the word where we get... Uh, house from, and the Greek as well, this dwelling, it denotes a settled, 
permanent and penetrative influence. A settled, permanent, penetrative influence. Dear ones, when the Spirit of God takes up residence in the life of a believer, that residence is fixed and settled, and his influence is evident. It's evident. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 15, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Therefore, to be a spiritual person in the biblical sense is to be indwelt and led by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what it means to be spiritual. To be indwelt by and led by the Holy Spirit of God. This is biblical teaching. It's to live one's life in the Spirit and thus not to set one's and thus, rather, to set one's mind on the things of the Spirit. That is, the things that God's Word teaches are true and beautiful and glorifying to God. So, dear believer, let this sink in. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You may have a poor conception of yourself. You may think in a very self-deprecating way, not in a, not in a healthy self-deprecation, but in an unhealthy one. You may question God's love for you and His presence with you. But let this sink in for a moment. God loves you so much that He sent His beloved Son into the world to be crucified on a wretched, cursed cross for your sins and for my sins. And his son died and went into the tomb for three days and rose from the dead, as we're going to be considering in a moment. And at Pentecost, the father and the son together poured out the spirit upon the church so that now the spirit of God isn't just with his people, but actually indwelling his people who are the realization of the temple in the Old Testament. We are the temple, filled by the Spirit of God and called to live out our Christian lives, making as living sacrifices, making sacrifices of praise unto the Lord, sacrifices of thanksgiving. It's glorious to see all the, the links and the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament with all these types and shadows and figures joyfully anticipating the realization of the, these things in the new. And the Old Testament, where the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple, now we fast forward, it is in the church, namely us, where the Spirit of God dwells within. And so the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there are two exhortations I want to make this morning in this regard. Do not live in fear of the future or in the fear of this world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Isn't that good news? It's a lot of fear right now. A lot of fear about what's happening in Washington, D.C., what's happening in North Korea, what's happening in Russia, 
who's got the nukes and who's going to use them. A lot of fear about the future. A lot of fear about the future on a local level in your lives. Your, your, what are you going to do next? What's the next step? What's the next chapter of your life? How are you going to deal with this particular situation or that situation? And we tend to want to live in fear of the future about tomorrow, and we tend to live in fear about what's going on in the world, but we're not called or encouraged in any way to live in fear, but to live by faith in the precious promises of God and to recognize that not only is God with us, but He indwells us. And He's taken up residence and He's not leaving. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Secondly, the Holy Spirit in you means that He is sanctifying you. He's renovating you. He's transforming you more and more into the image of Christ. We've already considered countless times in the study of Romans uh, the doctrine of justification, this doctrine which teaches us that, that in our natural self apart from Christ, all we have is a robe of tattered sins and unrighteousness. That's all we have. And so dying in that state means that you die and you stand before God, the holy judge, only with your sin, only in your sin. That's all you got. And there will be no excuses, no justifications. You can try to tell lies and be deceitful, but God already knows everything. You you can't get away. You are standing there guilty. That's it. And that's the state that you will be in on your own with only your sin. But the good news is that God sent His Son into the world to be crucified on the cross for your sin, for your guilt, for my sin and for my guilt. And so He is... He receives the penalty I deserve on the cross. The debt of our sin is paid for, and the righteousness that is Christ's, he gives to us. So whereas before, if I died in my sin, I'm standing before God, and all I have is my robe of unrighteousness, my tattered, wicked robe of unrighteousness, and all the the mounds of guilt and sin that I've committed, that's all I have before God, and I am guilty But in Christ, he has been made the sin bearer. He has been made the one who receives the penalty, the curse on the cursed tree. And when by grace through faith, I put my trust in him, my sin is on the cross. His righteousness is to me. And I stand before God, not only cleansed of all my sin, but robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what does God say when he looks down and says and sees a man or a woman or a boy or girl robed in the righteousness of his own son whom he sent to save them. What does he say? Justified. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not because of anything we've done, can do or will do, but only because of what Christ has done. Not guilty. That's being justified. But the news gets even better. God doesn't declare us righteous and justified by grace through faith and then just leave us to figure it all out. To leave us, to pull up our bootstraps and get going in the Christian life. And, you know, God's done a lot for you. Now get, get going. Which is how some preaching is. 
You know, oh, you're a Christian? Here are your 20 rules. Follow them, darn it. That is, that is not a proper understanding of the Christian life. You see, what happens is, is when we're brought into union with Christ and therefore declared righteous, a process begins, a, 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 a process begins called sanctification, whereby the Spirit of God is transforming us by His grace and through the means of grace. He's renovating us. He takes up residence in us, and he begins this renovation project, and no room is off limits. That's when we're in a bad spiritual state, is when we say, God, you can have these 110 rooms of my life, but not this one. This one's for me. I'm going to hold on to this idol. I'm going to live in this sin, and I don't want you to touch it. But hey, all these other rooms, go ahead. But you see, the Spirit of God, just like our depravity being all over us and in us, poisoning our entire nature, when the Spirit comes into our life, He begins to renovate all of us, our mind, our heart, our will, our affections. He renews the moral life of the believer. This inward renovation and spiritual growth impacts the whole man, just like our church renovation project impacted every square inch of space in our facility. Isn't that right, Jake Earl? Every square inch. You can literally go to anywhere in the space that we are in right now, and, and it's new, at least two years old. And progressive sanctification, the indwelling Holy Spirit, transforms and renews the moral life of the believer. The grace of sanctification renovates everything that sin ruined. It's a complete renovation that occurs over a lifetime. Listen to what Thomas Boston says in his marvelous book, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Quote, As the sap conveyed from the stalk into the branch goes through it and through every part of it, so the Spirit of Christ sanctifies the whole man. The poison of sin was diffused through the whole spirit, soul, and body of the man, and sanctifying grace pursues it into every corner. Every part of the man is sanctified, though no part is perfectly so. Just as a real estate investor might go into downtown Charleston and buy some dilapidated homes uh, and over time renovate them to a high standard, so God purchases ruined sinners with the blood of His Son, declares them His own through baptism, and over a lifetime renovates them to the highest standard. And what is that standard? It's Christ. We are being conformed more and more into His image, to the image of God's Son. 1 John 3, 2 states, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Later in Romans 8, we read in verse 29, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Well, this brings us to a clarifying and sobering fact at the end of verse 9. Look with me there. Paul writes, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It's clarifying and it's sobering that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. What do we need to keep in mind here? Number one, 
that when a person is united to Christ, he or she is necessarily indwelt by the Spirit. Every Christian, in other words, is in the Spirit because he or she is indwelt by the Spirit. Secondly, what we learn here is that the relationship between the persons and work of Christ, the person and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit are so intimately connected that Paul speaks of having, notice there, the Spirit of Christ. The same goes for the Spirit of God, also mentioned in this, which is the Spirit of the Father. You see, the three persons of the Trinity are distinct but never separate. So much so that the Holy Spirit can be called the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ. John Murray comments that, quote, the persons of the Godhead are co-active in the acts of redemption and will be also in the consummating act as revealed in Paul's words about the triune God's action in the resurrection of Christ. In the last day, the Father will send the Son to judge the world and the Son will come and the Spirit of God will raise up from the dead all of his people. Another thing we learn here is that no Christian is without the Spirit. No Christian is without the Holy Spirit. There have been some Christian traditions and teaching which have taught that there are various levels of Christianity or Christians, some who do not possess the Spirit and others who do, some who possess a larger portion of the Spirit than others. Some have taught that there's a so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit, which has the evidence of tongue-speaking showing that you have the Holy Spirit. This is all erroneous teaching. Every Christian has the Spirit of God. You have the same Spirit of God that Billy Graham had. You have the same Spirit of God that Martin Luther had. The question is, do we walk in the Spirit and set our minds on the Spirit? Do we yield to the Spirit? in our Christian lives in ever-increasing measure. Fourthly, we recognize that those who have the Spirit belong to Jesus. We are not our own. We are His possession. And He has made a down payment in us, Ephesians chapter 1, called the Holy Spirit, a down payment which will one day guarantee that He will finish that work that He has begun in us. Finally, And briefly, we have a glorious and comforting promise. A glorious and comforting promise. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Whether or not someone is united to Christ and thus indwelt by the Holy Spirit has eternal significance. We see that here, beloved. Whether or not you are united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit has an eternal significance. Sentimental words at funerals don't pay the debt of sin. Sentimental words at funerals are not an absolution for all sin. 
Only through faith in Christ, the sinless one, the mediator in whom God condemned uh, because of our sin in his flesh, the perfect one who paid the debt of our sins and provided us with his saving righteousness, only through faith in him are we made right with God and will be resurrected unto everlasting life. Notice the peculiar phrase in verse 10. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Here Paul's reminding everyone that, that the body, the wages of sin is death, right? And, and part of what it means to live in this fallen world is that our bodies die. There was an extraordinary statistic that came out this week that 100% of people die. <laughs> Write that down so you don't forget it. Why do people die? You ever thought about that? Why do people die? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. It's because of sin. It's because of sin. And so our bodies have death in them. From the moment we're born, we begin, in a sense, to die. The hourglass has been turned over, and we don't know how long we have to live. I just got news a couple of days ago that a ruling elder down in Ocala, Florida, who was at every one of our Gospel Reformation Network events. I was just speaking with him a couple of months ago. He went to the gym, and he had a massive heart attack and died last week. I don't think he probably had it on his mind, as probably none of us would, that on his way to the gym that, you know, this could be it. But it was for him. And he had his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this body of death is real. And Paul speaks of it. Although this body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's reminding God's people that although our mortal bodies experience the effects of sin, in other words, death is in us because of sin, and we will all die one day, the good news is that the Spirit in us is life because of the righteousness that is ours in Christ. So all of this has eternal implications. In 1739, while on a sea voyage in the West Indies, Nicholas von Zinzendorf wrote a glorious hymn that we sing in this church. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Now listen to this. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, the blood and righteousness of Christ, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, Even then, this shall be my only plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. You see, Paul is instructing God's people that since they are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, the same Spirit that filled Jesus and raised Him from the dead is the same Spirit that lives within us and will raise us from the dead in Christ on that great day of resurrection. Look with me at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. So where will you be, dear one, on that final day, that resurrection day? Will you be raised unto everlasting damnation or raised unto everlasting life? Will you be raised and stand before the judgment seat of God in your sin? Or will you be raised forgiven of your sin and robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ? There's no tertium quid. There's no middle way. There's no fence. There's nothing in between. There are no excuses. There's no nebulous place in the middle for people who tried real hard. You're either in your sin or you are robed in the very righteousness of Christ for your salvation. Oh, that you would know this. Those who are in Christ, set your minds on the things of the Spirit, these things that we are thinking of this morning, and may they compel you to live by faith and not by fear, to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh or this world, to walk with God in intimate fellowship and not to give yourself to the world and all its wicked allurements. Abide in Christ. Cling tightly to Christ even as he clings everlastingly to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, these are in some ways complex and yet in others very simple. Are we in Christ or not? Are we indwelt by the Spirit or not? Are we forgiven or not? Are we still in our sins or not? And we ask, Lord, that you would draw us all into saving communion with you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his blessed imputed righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name.